Welcome to the Orgasmic Lifestyle Podcast by Venus O'Hara. I'm here to welcome you into the world of orgasmic living by hosting experts to discuss orgasmic topics such as nutrition, spirituality, personal development, sexuality, and much more. Here, we will offer lifestyle lessons that can help you lead a fulfilling, joyous, and orgasmic lifestyle. I'm your guide, Venus O'Hara. Welcome to the 31st episode of the Orgasmic Lifestyle Podcast by Venus O'Hara. In this new moon episode, I'll be discussing life purpose. We'll be speaking with Rachel Braun Sherl, a vagipreneur and author of Orgasmic Leadership. Then I'll be discussing the book I'm reading now, which is Abundance, The Inner Path to Wealth by Deepak Chopra. And finally, we'll be experiencing a guided meditation with affirmations for living your life purpose. But first, let's talk about my own journey on finding and living my life purpose. How can you find your life purpose? How can you know what it is? Sometimes I think there can be more than one purpose in your life. Maybe not at the same time. Maybe it could be, it could change over time. For me, I think I struggled with that for a very long time. I think after university, I wanted to find a corporate job with a very nice package and lots of perks, travel, and lots of things that would help me feel more grown up. I think many of us define ourselves by our work, and that can be, it can be quite a lot of pressure really, and without our work, we can maybe feel that we don't really have a purpose. But your purpose in life is not just your work, I think it's just it could also be what, how you are in your personal life, your family life, etc. But for me, when I, if I could talk to my younger self, I would like to reassure myself and say, you know, you don't need to know what you're going to do with your life at 22. That's something I would like to share with anyone who is in that position of leaving university or studying and they're thinking they have to make all these decisions or that the decisions they make at that age are going to affect the rest of their lives. There's so much pressure and I think everything can be changed and paths can change, no problem. But for me, I think my purpose definitely was becoming a sexual wellness content creator. And it wasn't an easy thing to decide to do, actually, even though people might think it's frivolous or not important or that it's just a lot of fun all the time. I had to overcome so much judgment and so much criticism to actually get to where I am today. And also a lot of fear. I had a lot of fear about what would other people think of me, especially people that I care about, because I mean, strangers online, I don't really care um, because they're just projecting their own stuff. But when it's people who know how hard I've worked or, or how I am behind the scenes, that's when it really hurts when someone can judge you. And I remember throughout my 20s, I was having lots of bad luck with work. It was just, it just seemed to be challenging for me just to hold a decent job down, even though I gave my heart and soul to many jobs that I did in those, in that time. And it just felt like I had a lot of bad luck over and over. And I was just thinking, God, what can I do? But in parallel to that, I always really enjoyed sexuality and I had orgasms like very easily through um, penetration. And I, I think it was the A spot, which is an area kind of deep inside the vagina on the front wall. 
And for me, if that area is stimulated by a penis or by fingers, it's instant orgasm. It's the kind of orgasm that just makes me want to cry. I feel this absolute surrender to a higher power. I feel blessed by the divine masculine. It just makes me feel so... I don't know how can I describe it. It's a very mind mindful experience. I'm not thinking about anything. I'm just feeling and surrendering. It's just the, the greatest expression of pleasure I've ever experienced. And I think this is this is what really led me down this path of, of sexuality. It's, it seemed to be something that gave me total and immense joy. But also there were times in my life where it was destructive and I was choosing the wrong types of relationships because I craved that sensation so much. So I really do believe that sexual energy can be creative or it can be destructive as well. So liking sex so much, I did feel that my view or experience of sexuality wasn't really out there despite the abundance of sexual content available. I didn't really find that it was focused so much on authentic pleasure and the beauty of sexuality, it was, I just found it was all kind of maybe a, a medical approach or a really pornographic approach. I didn't really feel that my approach was either. And I think, I do think I'm a bit of a sapiosexual as well in, in, in that most of my sexuality is happening in my mind and sometimes in my heart as well, but more than in my body for sure, even though that, um, that stimulation of the A spot, which is a physical experience, but just, just seem to transcend the physical and it becomes something much more than that. But as soon as I actually overcame the fear of what other people were going to think of me, especially people who are close to me, I felt that as soon as I made that decision, doors started opening to me everywhere and it was incredible and they still are opening. I didn't really feel as though I had to have this t defined um, idea of what my purpose was. It was just starting a blog at first and then over time it's um, become different things and I've let things become, you know, come into my path or in my inbox more likely. And um, so I haven't had to make certain decisions about make taking direction. I've been quite reactive, probably more than proactive. And, and it's been great to be guided by other people because I do believe that the universe speaks to us through other people. So for example, for me, I never in intended to become a YouTuber, but some of my clients wanted me to make videos about their products, so I became a YouTuber. And then some people also um, suggested that I made a vid video blog for a vlog for a TV channel, so I started doing that. So I, I never really took the initiative myself to do a lot of the things that I'm doing, or even become a podcaster. It was definitely because of other people guiding me, and that's kind of a nice space to be in and not feel as though I am constricted by this one idea or, or one type of purpose. Well, it's a kind of broad purpose, but niche at the same time. And even though it can be a lot of fun, what I do, it's definitely challenging in some ways in, in that we have to navigate um, censorship and judgment and um, yeah, some, some negativity for sure. It's not so easy. And I think people have this perception that sex sells, but it doesn't really, I think you have to work even harder if you're in this sector and you have to withstand a lot of personal criticism and overcome obstacles that are not, um, that don't exist in other sectors for sure. I'll be talking about this more in detail with um, our guest today, Rachel braun Sherl. But one thing that is true for anyone who is on this purpose of orgasmic leadership or anyone who is 
devoted to the world of sexual wellness is that despite all of the criticism, all of the obstacles, it's always worth it. And the, and the rewards are just absolutely phenomenal and it makes it all worth it. Did you know that you can use your sexual energy to manifest the life of your dreams? It's called sex magic. I've been practicing sex magic for almost five years and it's changed my life. If you're interested in one-to-one -one magic mentoring with me, visit my website, venusohara.org to find out more. Now it's time for this episode's interview. I'm going to be speaking to Rachel Braun Sherl, a vagipreneur and author of Orgasmic Leadership. Rachel Braun Sherl, welcome to the Orgasmic Lifestyle Podcast. Thank it's, you. It's a pleasure to have you here. And I've read that you are you, you are known as a vagipreneur. Can you tell us what that is? Absolutely. First of all, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I was really taken by the name of your podcast, <laughs> Orgasmic Lifestyle, and I've written a book called Orgasmic Leadership. Um, the The name or the moniker Vagipreneur actually came from a New York Times journalist who did the first story on the company I was founding with my business partner. And she said, oh, I get it. You're in the business and vaginas are involved. You're a vagipreneur. And she literally came mm -hmm. out with the name, Abby Ellen. She's a journalist for the Times. And I would use it. And every time I would get at least some response, uh, people would be paying more attention or they would laugh and it, it opened the, the door to have a conversation. So about a year after she gave, she mentioned that name, I reached out to her and I said, I love this name. You came up with it. So it belongs to you. If you don't want it, I'd like to trademark it. So I did to use it as a shorthand to describe someone who's in the business of women's sexual and reproductive health. Wonderful. So what inspired you to work in this field in the first place? Well, I'd always worked in women's businesses and things that affected women from the tops of their heads, to the tips of their toes. So hair care, skin care, oral care, menstruation, fertility, hemorrhoids, foot fungus, you name it. So I'd always been dealing um, with women as the primary buyers of a lot of these products, whether they were um, prescription device or over the counter. And in 2008, a venture capitalist came to me with a business plan. And he said, this isn't for me. This doesn't fit into my investment thesis, but you and Mary, Mary's been my, was my business partner for 20 years. You and Mary might like this. So we started to dive into it. And we found that in this space, which happened to be around desire, um, arousal and satisfaction, there were so many gaps. There was really no language to talk about it. You know, on the internet, you saw either porn or disease at one end of the spectrum or another. And there, most people are somewhere um, in the middle. Only three to 5% of obstetricians and gynecologists were talking about this with their patients. There had been dozens of active clinical programs. Most of them had collapsed for quite a number of reasons. And it was like the perfect storm. So we figured out a way to buy the asset, which was a product that improved arousal, desire, and satisfaction for women of all ages and life stages. And we launched the company. So what year was this? 2008. Okay, great. And then tell us about orgasmic leadership. I read the book. 
thank you so much on this podcast I love reading books and then interviewing interviewing the authors it's such a privilege um so what inspired you to actually write this book also I love everything with the title orgasmic I just love that word as well so orgasmic leadership what was the inspiration behind it again a really smart woman was sitting next to me at a conference and I do a tremendous amount of public speaking on entrepreneurship, leadership, the business of sexual health, the business of reproductive health. Um, And she said, you know what, Rachel, lots of people do all kinds of speeches on leadership and entrepreneurship. Why don't you do it around your topic? Make it more personal, have but orgasmic leadership. And at the time I said to her, Karen Kahn, I said, she was in a totally different business. She's, um, a coach for lawyers and legal services and growing those kinds of businesses, totally unrelated. And I said, I love that name, but you know, the companies who hire me to speak are not going to send out an email saying, come here, a speech about orgasmic leadership. They're just not going to be comfortable, but it was always in my head. And I'm going to say a year or two later, I, I wish that some lightning struck and I had an inspiration. I was literally sitting in a chair quietly, which is not something I normally do. And I said, this is a book. And so I reached out to people I knew in the space about, you know, five or six people and said, I'd like to do a very structured interview about how you've built your business, how you decided to be in this space of women's sexual and reproductive health as an academic, as an entrepreneur, as an investor, um, as a healthcare practitioner. And I started having these conversations and people were very open and available. And by the time I was done, I had done over three dozen interviews. And what the book is, is really a story of my journey and their journey in the context of existing business trends, things that are hap- were happening and are happening that provided an environment or an opportunity to build these conversations or build these businesses. So it's really as many times as people say, you know, are you going to tell me the best vibrator to buy? You know, certainly as a human, I would have recommendations, but the book is really about how do you build a business in a complicated space where you're talking about products and experiences and body parts that make the majority of people uncomfortable? And how do you take advantage of what's happening from a a business perspective to build those businesses. So for instance, very simple one, you know, customization, direct distribution of menstrual products. You know, you used to go, or maybe some people still do go to the store and you could buy one size or you could buy multiple sizes and you always wound up with, with things left in the way over. So the ability to customize and create packs and, and deliver them direct to consumer was taking advantage of a change in distribution. Um, There were lots of companies that I talked to where they took advances in material technology and applied it to other categories. So think, thinks, um, the period panty, that was the result of obviously an idea and a need, but it was possible because of this material that was created that was both absorbent and wouldn't smell and could serve the purpose of menstrual pads and be much more comfortable. So what was your inspiration? Why why did you choose to create, do the book this way of um, interviewing so many people? I just thought that my experience was so powerful in so many ways, um, mostly positive and some negative. 
And over the course of the time that I'd been in this space, every person I met was smart, dynamic, creative, and they were all doing things. And I wanted to basically say, how can we take some of this learning of all these people that have inspired me and motivated me and provide a roadmap or lessons learned or mistakes not to make. And maybe this would accelerate someone else's path. Maybe they would stumble over fewer um, rocks in the road. So the idea really was to say, what can we learn from this collective and how do we amplify this conversation that is so important that affects every aspect of a woman's life? So you spoke to many different people from many different fields in the space of sexual wellness and pleasure. What was the biggest revelation to you or the biggest surprise, something that really you didn't expect? So at the end of each interview, I, I don't know if you know, the James Lipton used to do um, inside the actor studio. He's since passed away, but he did these interviews in New York in a live studio where he interviewed presidents and actors and authors and comedians. And at the end, he asked everybody the same 10 questions. So at the because these stories were so disparate and the people were so unique, I asked everybody the same 10 questions. So I would at least have one point where I could look at them side by side. And what was so overwhelmingly clear was that these were people who were passionate, who had most of them always had some inkling to build something. They had had some motivation. You know, the first entrepreneur I interviewed, she had sold peaches with her brother by the side of the road. You know, that was her first introduction to entrepreneurship. Um, and the other was really the relentlessness, how powerful these folks were as individuals. And in this space, you know, we hear about it all the time with women raising money in general, how, you know, they get less than 3% of the venture capital um, and how much more difficult it is to raise large amounts of capital. And then in this space in particular, you have all these challenges with getting your, your messages out on social media is how driven they were and how, whether they came into it for a personal reason or driven by business or an idea that hit them on the top of the head, that it became a passion. And I found that myself. I came in it from a capitalist perspective. This looked like a great opportunity. But the longer you're in the space, and what I learned from everybody in the space, is there comes a point when it is mission-driven. That doesn't just mean that it's a social enterprise. Lots of these businesses are in the, in the business of making money. But the idea that at some point everybody came to realize how interconnected and complex and beautiful women's sexual and reproductive health, how complex they are. And Definitely. I just, I, I was amazed at how smart and funny and creative and thoughtful and interesting and collaborative um, the people I interviewed were. So one of the conclusions that I always talk about is these are different kinds of entrepreneurs creating different kinds of companies, meaning they're having a conversation that hasn't been had before, hasn't been had in such an open way. And I always think about 
Saturn, I don't know if you remember the ads, a different kind of company and a different kind of car. That's how I think about women's sexual and reproductive health. It is a different space. It, it, it does catalyze different conversations. It does attract um, people literally from all over the world. And as a woman in business for 25 plus years, this is the most collaborative, um, supportive, sharing environment that I've ever been in. So that for me has also been, as for many of the other people in the book, a source of inspiration, this idea that we're all trying to push this boulder uphill. Definitely. And I think if I remember correctly, one of the questions was, what's your favorite word or something? But, and I saw a couple saying yes. And I thought that was interesting because um, I also asked two questions I'll ask you at the end. Um, what's the quote you live by and what's your favorite book or the book that changed your life? And I've had a few guests who say, um, just say yes. You know, when when you're offered an opportunity, because yes is like, say, opening up. It's like that film, uh, Yes Man. I haven't seen it yeah. actually with Jim, Jim Carrey. We're just a... Uh, being open to new opportunities. And I think that's quite interesting to have. It's yeah. fascinating. One of the things that struck me in the past couple of years was this line from um, Brene Brown, who obviously has the world famous um, TED talk, but wrote a book called Daring Greatly. And when I was watching her speak, she did this Netflix series. And she basically said, I'm not going to quote her, but the implication that I took from it was, if you're not feeling scared or nervous every day, you're not trying hard enough. And to me, what was so powerful about that is, you know, I get that feeling in my stomach when I'm nervous about something or there's something big or exciting. And instead of thinking, wow, that's an uncomfortable feeling. Now I say, oh, good. I'm on the right track. I feel uncomfortable. So I must be going in the right direction. And I just think that's a really interesting way to look at it. Um, one of the, the things I talk about in the book along the lines of just say yes, is I say, don't take no for an answer. You know, mm -hmm. if you have to kiss a hundred frogs to get a dollar of investment, if you stay with it, you will succeed and don't bow out because someone will get your yes, but it is frustrating, but it is not personal. No is a learning experience and you will get there. So this idea that you continue to stay on the path and you're continuing to work towards something is not specific to women. It's not specific to women's sexual and reproductive health, but, you know, yes, man, and the word yes, and don't take no for an answer all are around the same idea that, you know, you have to keep moving forward and you have to believe and you have to take the steps to get towards that vision that you see. And for people who are not in this space of sexual wellness, I think there is a misconception that sex sells. What do you say to those people that sex just sells um, on its well, own? Well, for sure, porn sells. Um, there's a lot of interest in talking about sex. And when I look at reproductive and sexual health, I think of the space from menstruation through menopause. And I think when they say sex sells, it tends to speak to the pleasure businesses. So, you know, during lockdown, sales of vibrators went through the roof, sales of condoms went through the roof, sales of toys went through the roof. But I still um, think they still have these um, obstacles that perhaps you have as well, you know, not being able to advertise in certain places. 100%. So, so there's a lot of obstacles and it's actually harder you know, to buy advertising and it's really, really hard. And I've been facing this since mm -hmm. 2008 when, 
or 2010 when I went to 100 media outlets, radio, cable, website, um, network, and 95 said no. And so we built a business around this PR strategy that if you can't buy media through advertising, we were going to earn it and create a movement and create um, a conversation. And I call that your, you know, the fighting city hall moment. And you can see over the course of the last 15 years, many, many, many brands and many founders have had that experience where you're spending more time fighting the barriers in the space than building the business. But there's something about that that gives you, you know, resolve uh, and strength to, to keep going. And for me, having been in this space a long time, it's amazing to see the evolution. You know, now there are funds, cre only funds created by women to invest in women, and then a subset of that to invest in women's health. I could be at a conference for some aspect of sexual health every month. I remember the first time in 2018, I was in a meeting with a whole group of people talking about sexual and reproductive health, and I thought I died and went to heaven. It was so exciting, and it was one. And now these are frequent. And now there are women who have much greater access to capital who are investing. And there, there's so many things that have changed. And being in a community really does make a difference. Mm, definitely. I actually saw some projections actually about the sexual wellness business. And I can't remember how far ahead it was going, but it talks about the menopausal lubricant market is going to boom in about five, 10 years. It's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So I think people are finally kind of tapping into this need because the women are probably more liberated now and, um, and not thinking I've just had my kids, so it's over. You know, it's people who get divorced or just always curious about sexuality. And this is actually a growing sector or growing kind of interest. Yeah, there's so many layers to what you just said. Um, first of all, just take the numbers over 1.1 uh, billion women will be in menopause in 2025. So that's an enormous opportunity. <clears throat> Second, um, there's a lot more conversation about menopause. And there's a lot more conversation about looking at a woman, not as you're menopausal, you need this, you're trying to get pregnant, let me sell you a pregnancy test kit, you're menstruating, let me sell you a pad, but looking at her as a total human across the range of her life. And many of the things that are being discussed um, in menopause are things that could also affect you at other parts of your life. Obviously, you know, for many people, vaginal dryness becomes much worse because of the estrogen drop, and that often affects um, the comfort, the pleasure, the enjoyability. Um, of sex. So I think there's a couple of things happening. There's a huge number. So there's a huge opportunity. There are women in the workplace who are in leadership positions or have built things or have access to capital who are now in menopause. And many of them are leading the charge. One of the other things, which I think has catalyzed the conversation, and it certainly wasn't planned, is that in the UK, as I'm sure you know, there was an, a hormone replacement therapy shortage. Oh, so yeah. they had to start having conversations because for women for whom th hormone therapy is a choice um, that she makes or, uh, with um, their doctor, uh, it wasn't available. And for the people who are finding relief with that, it was a big deal. So the UK is much further ahead in the conversation. They're much further ahead 
<coughs> excuse me, in creating workplace, workplace awareness and programs that respond to this population. So if you think about several years ago, the Apples and Googles and Facebooks of the world started offering IVF and egg freezing and all kinds of maternal and reproductive support with the idea of keeping their best people in the workforce, you know, to grow with the company. And it's a similar idea with menopause that many of the women in the workplace <coughs> who are in menopause bring 20 years of experience, 25. They might now have more time because they're empty nesters. They might be at the peak of their career because they have all this knowledge. And shouldn't we be thinking about a way to keep them in the workforce? And so there are a lot of companies now, instead of just saying, you know, we're going to sell X billion dollars worth of this pharmaceutical, they're looking at other costs of not looking at these cases. You know, people not returning to work, lack of productivity, um, taking sick days and, and people being unprepared. But there's a growing body of data that says companies who think about this and demonstrate to their members that they did their employees that they care about this have better attention. They have higher productivity. They reduce their surge costs. So there's so much economic there are so many economic factors tied up, not just in the treatment of the symptoms, but in all the other things that happen. And mental health is also a great example that obviously affects people of all ages and has now become something that workplaces are offering and thinking about and talking about. That was unheard of, certainly, you know, in the first 20 years of my career. I was watching, I think, I can't remember which film it was now, something about what was the one that Nicole Kidman was in and Javier Bardem, I Love Lucy, that she couldn't say the word yes. pregnant on TV. She couldn't say pregnant. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? It was, it, and I saw, yeah, I saw it was, something with uh, Joan Rivers as well. I mean, that's absolutely crazy. Mm. There are so many things that are better and different. Mm -hmm. um, so I say I like to be optimistic and realistic. We have momentum. You know, there is tons of money going into the space relative to what used to go into the space, but still a pittance compared to what we're investing in other areas. Um, and I think it was uh, Harvard Business Review that recently came out with an article that said, women create solutions for men and women, and mm -hmm. men tend to create solutions for men. So there have to be women in this space. And one of the characteristics that is so common of the people in this space is they saw a problem they didn't see a good solution. So they said, I'm going to find a solution. And in the course of finding the solution, they say, wow, looks like lots of other people have this. This could be a business. So it's really often driven by a personal need um, and the lack of available options in the marketplace or in the physician's office or in the healthcare ecosystem. Yeah, I think you mentioned something in the book about Oh, my wife doesn't talk about this, so it doesn't exist, that type of mentality as well. Right. So what you're referring to is when you go into speak to investors, you know, I said 1.1 billion women will be in menopause in 2025. You still hear the word niche used to describe menopause. Mm -hmm. um, and I say that, you know, 50% of people who are born onto this planet will experience menopause. That sounds like a big opportunity. And so when you share these statistics, the one that I think you're referring to is 
with the pleasure product, we would share that 43% of women have sexual concerns and difficulties at some point in their lives. And every male investor that we spoke to in every room, at least two people said, my wife never complained about that. And, you know, in all, with all due respect, either she didn't have the problem or she did, and she didn't have the language or the opportunity or the comfort level to discuss it. You know, close to one out of two pregnancies every year in the US are mistimed. That speaks to a huge opportunity in contraception or better education around contraception and more options around contraception. Um, you know, a third of women suffer from incontinence at some point in their lives and that percentage of, a, of the menopausal market is even higher. These are huge, huge, huge opportunities. And I was on a panel recently with some other folks in the space and uh, a male physician who uh, said, you know, to an audience, and he was considerably older than the other panelists. And he said, you know, in order to get men to care about incontinence, you have to tell them how it would affect you and the, how it would affect a man. And the example he gave was, for instance, if my wife's suffering from incontinence and we can't go to the theater or see a movie, you know, that's bothersome. So there's so many things wrong with that statement. Number one, assuming that everybody is in a heterosexual relationship. Number two, that that is motivating to worry about the man, that, that it's menopause or incontinence becomes about him. And I made the comment, I tried to be polite. And I said, with all due respect, I'm never going to have prostate cancer. I don't have a prostate, but it doesn't prevent me from seeing and understanding the disruption it could cause in someone's life and the size of the prize of finding good solutions. So that's sort of myopic vision of, you know, making about him. There's so many women and people identify as women in this space that as a collective are taking hold of the conversation. So we're not required to talk about it from his perspective. And that is not at all to say that a lot of these things don't affect couples, don't affect men, um, don't affect partnerships. But there's always, in most of the businesses that I work in, a woman or a person who identifies as a woman at, at the center. So I've been looking at your LinkedIn uh, profiles. What tells about Pulse? What is Pulse? Pulse is an amazing company that I um, started consulting to several years ago. Uh, and basically one of the investors, the founder is Amy Buckhalter, founder and CEO. And she had an early angel investor and the product was created around Amy's personal experience with increased vaginal dryness during menopause and being frustrated with the quality of the options. And um, one of her investors said, oh, you're talking about, you know, literally the conversation went, oh, you're talking about vaginas. You should call this person, Rachel. So that's how we got connected. <laughs> um, and uh, less than a year ago, I joined as chief development officer. It is a device and consumable platform that sits on a desk or um, in a bedroom or in a nursery or in a bathroom um, with pods that are specially formulated, that are dispensed hands-free, touch-free, mess-free, hygienic, and warmed. 
So this beautiful product comes into your hands. Right now, the products that are available are water-based lubricant, a silicone-based lubricant, and a massage oil, one with CBD, one without. And it really was designed to respond to the pain points that Amy and her discovery and her experience of going through this realized by interviewing 300 women, which I always find astounding. She discovered this problem, said, oh, I think I'll learn more, hired a PhD and interviewed 300 women, which is just emblematic of the of how creative and interesting the people are in this space. Um, it was cold, it was messy, it was sticky, it was hard to find in the dark and you're fumbling around. So the whole idea was to create this platform for menopause around vaginal dryness. And the customer always tells you what's real. And what we found out in the marketplace is that lots of young people are using this. More people 18 to 34 are using this product and the, and the formulations than 55 plus. More wow. men than women are using this product. So we know it's not just for vaginal dryness. It's for a number of other things. It's for pleasure. It's for massages. It's for enjoyment. It's for anal play. It's So the, the vision that Amy had was so fundamental, but customers are telling us how much wider it's going. And the product, you know, I, I exited the first company I spoke to you about in 2013 in 2021, eight years later, Nordstrom and uh, Bloomies accepted sexual wellness products into these, into these, into their doors, um, their proverbial doors. All these products are sold online. So we got the product into Bloomingdale's, Nordstrom, Saks, Goop, where there's a whole lot of conversation happening. And you know, my role is driving revenue opportunities. So we have. Um, a lot of exciting things in the pipeline. We're working with a company to develop a portable. The current product is $199 and sits on someone's nightstand, as I said, or on a flat surface. The portable, you can take in your car, you can put in your computer bag, you can put in your gym bag. So the idea will be that we'll have a product, a device at every price point, and then we'll have products across a range of needs, starting with menopause, and vaginal dryness and intimate wellness. We'll go to baby, we'll go to skincare, and we'll go to men's grooming, all of which could benefit from the hands-free, mess-free, touch-free, warm, dispensed into your hand, more joyful experience. Oh, wow. Interesting. And what is Spark Solutions? That's a company that I created with my business partner. She and I have had a, a number of evolutions. So for 20 years, we've had this consulting business and it, I still, um, run it. And it really was how it was my learning experience on my company. So I worked with companies, J and J, Allergan, Pfizer, um, Merck, Bayer, Church and Dwight really focused on generating top line growth for their businesses, for their brands. Um, a lot of work around innovation and any communication activity, investment partnership, that will drive customers, whether those are consumers, patients, healthcare practitioners, companies, or payers to engage in a transaction. So it's really very much about pragmatic strategy. Oh, great. So it's kind of not, not just in the sexual wellness, it's kind of- It started much broader. Now the focus has become, as I said, vaginas all day, every day. So anywhere. <laughs> 
What do you love most about what you do? It's really fun. It's interesting. And I'm learning something every day. Mm -hmm. So that's all great. And that I would hope to have in any career that I chose. I find the creativity of the ideas and the solutions um, to be just mind boggling. The today I just read about a consumer product where you can do an initial diagnostic for breast cancer, not oh. to replace it's still in development, not to replace a mammogram or being under the um, treatment or care of a healthcare practitioner, but as early indicators. We have billions of data points on the experience of menopause because of these apps, uh, not just menopause, lots of other things which didn't exist before. So it's constantly changing. And one of my favorite things to do is um, I launched a podcast with uh, my partner in crime, a gynecologist um, who also does a million things. She's a chief medical officer. She's an author. She's a speaker. Um, and it's called Business of the V. And it really is at the center of what I'm most interested in, which is unmet needs, unanswered questions, patient care, partnered with the businesses that are being created to respond to them. And that's what I love every day, every week in the past 15 years that I've been in, it really focused on this space. I never stop learning. It's like the, the, the college degree or the graduate degree that never ends. I can completely empathize with that. Cause I've been in, you know, focused on sex toys for the last 15 years, first as a user. And then professionally since 2013 so nine years and I have 700 toys and people ask me well, are there really new things and I'm like yes there's new things coming out all the time it's really interesting how there's just constant evolution in, in this space yeah I mean in that space that you're talking about that you're an expert mm -hmm. in specifically there are shapes that didn't exist before every mm -hmm. vibrator used to be a phallic shape now there yeah. are hundreds of shapes there are hundreds of activities and movements and speeds that people can use to figure out what gives them pleasure. Yeah. And one of my questions that I have that I have been in this space for a long time that I still haven't really don't know, really know the answer. And I'm sure a lot of people have this question as well is, um, is it possible to have a happy menopause naturally? That's something I really, because I recently wrote an article about lubricants for menopause and I was doing all this research and I just discovered that women were using lubricants just for kind of maintenance, not just for sex. And I was, that was a big surprise for me. So I, I think that even though people are talking about it more, we don't really know the date, the details, the ins and outs of it. And I think um, that's one of the questions I have anyway, is do all I have to take? Cause I've heard about BHRT, which I find intriguing, but do you have to go down that route to kind of have, can you just be natural? That's one of those questions that I have. Cause I'm, I kind of have a natural life. So uh, I'm just thinking, how's that going to change? You know, well, first of all, it's a defense how it depends how you define natural, but there certainly are, you know, any physician who starts with you or any education you get on menopause will start with lifestyle changes, nutritional choices, sleep and exercise. So those are the first four things, but there are a number of businesses that are focused on exactly what you said. Uh, a natural transition or handling of the symptoms in menopause. And it depends on the person. It depends on the severity and the disruption of the symptoms. But that is a conversation that's happening more and more. And we see that 
idea of natural. It's a little bit of a, um, a translation. Now we see huge amounts of effort being put into non-hormonal contraception. For oh, wow. years and years and years, people use the pill, they used other things and, and still do that have hormones. And now there's a huge demand and now products being launched that have been launched that are hormone-free to provide pregnancy protection or prevention. So that natural conversation is getting louder and louder. It's getting louder in food. It's getting louder in nature. It's getting louder in taking care of yourself and it's getting louder in menopause. Yeah, I hope so. Cause I mean, I've just uh, recently reviewed um, a supplement which had maca powder. That's the thing that you always kind of see in these natural hormone balance um, products. And I just think if only it's going to be that simple, you just take some, you know, maca roots in your smoothie and then it seems better than, than taking some hormones. And there are very many products that are based on some clinical efficacy that are natural the way you're describing it. So from nature um, mm -hmm. that do seem to have an impact on um, menopausal symptoms like black cohosh, there are a number, you just mentioned Makarut. So there are products that have formulated those ingredients, those natural ingredients into supplements, into creams, into drinks. So there's a lot of work in that space. Hopefully I'll be getting more and more, we increasing. Because I had read years ago, there's this product called Primarin, which is like horse urine. Yep. And as a vegan, I just like, oh, <laughs> it just makes, really turns me off having to, uh, having some gel that, that's got horse urine in it. it doesn't sound there are many 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 options yeah. that sound like they would fit the way you want to approach it and that's the beauty of these conversations conversations with you conversations that are being had in the space is you get to make your own choices you get to learn about the options and then pick the ones that work best for you great um tell us about your podcast so it's really been fun. We started in COVID um, and we've really had a great response. I, my favorite part, I don't know about how you feel. My favorite part is the conversation, you know, mm -hmm. the speaking with the guest, the rest of the stuff, you know, the marketing and the editing, I find less fun. But again, as I said, it's every week I'm learning something and I'm, I learn things from my co-host as a physician and the, the questions she asks and the things she's concerned about. And I'm learning about more in more detail, some about categories I knew a lot about, some which are relatively new discussions. And I, I love the entrepreneurs. I love the people who have raised their hand and said, I want to be in the space. Either I want to raise money to be in the space. I want to build a business to provide solutions. Um, I want to collaborate. And that's to me continues the energy of the ecosystem continues to drive me. And I get that Fantastic. right and right in my face every week when I get to speak to people. So you're doing every, a weekly podcast then? We're doing it's a, a weekly lot of work. Podcast. Yeah. It's a lot of work. <laughs> we, I think we've launched, um, give or take 54 episodes so far. So we've celebrated over our year anniversary and you know, hopefully we continue to get better. It's a huge learning curve. I, I'm sure you found that um, when you're starting this endeavor, there are different rules. Yeah. Um, there are different distribution channels. 
Um, so we're hoping, you know, to continue. We're starting to monetize it, which is exciting. Um, and what's really, really amazing is how easy it is. There's so many people to pick from. There's so many people doing interesting things in the space that will never run out of guests or topics. Great. So I think we started around the same time. It was August, um, 2021 for me. We started, we started thinking about it, um, in December of 2020 and launched with our first eight episodes in May of 2021, but a big buildup, you know, once you set the foundation, it becomes much easier, but there was a lot of prep and neither of us had ever done a podcast before. We've both done a tremendous amount of public speaking, but it's a slightly different animal. Definitely. I mean, for me, it's like very different from video. It's just, and also there's a whole learning curve from the beginning until now, you know, I do um, twice a month. I do full moon and new moon lunar schedule. <laughs> I love it. I love but, it. But it's uh, still a lot of work and there's more than what you think. Cause I have an ag- agency kind of helping me the first um, six months, but then there's a lot of the things I have to do as well. So it's, uh, it's incredible, but it's, it's interesting how I found that I st- shared more private things with a microphone than I did with a with a, on with video which is kind of interesting that is interesting they've mm-hmm. done tests that also you know even when they would I remember seeing this research where you know people felt much more comfortable saying things forget about just microphone but video to video computer to computer versus being in person so there is something that you do kind of forget at some point during the conversation that you're having a conversation with someone other than the the person at the other end of the microphone or on the other side of the zoom all the people are listening it's very weird <laughs> yeah definitely that's my favorite thing when you know people write in or text and say i learned so much that was so interesting where do i get that product i i really do like that because from the beginning my focus in this space has been creating important conversations that need to be had. And it feels so good to be in some small way, part of creating those conversations. Definitely. So tell us here are my two questions that I ask everyone. Uh, what's the quote that you live by? So that one's pretty easy because it's been the same since I was little. It's no timeout, no substitutions, which came from a movie I used to watch all the time with my dad. And it was this futuristic sport where men skated around on motorcycles with spikes on their gloves and spikes on their boots and you had to get this huge like dense brass ball silver ball into a target and you played till the death there were no timeout no substitution and now while that is quite gory the reason that i like it is my father used to use that and translate it for us as a way to live like no time out. This is your life. Show up, do the best you can as a mother, as a sister, as a, an aunt, as a friend, as a business person, as a therapist, as a whatever your chosen field is in terms of how you want to spend your time and show up every day. People are counting on you and work as hard as you can, as long as you can. And then you come back the next day and do it again. So it really became sort of a mantra for how to live for me for how to work, for how to, you know, stay on, keep focused and keep my eye on the ball. And people wow. always laugh, like what kind of 
parent lets their kid watch the violent movie where everybody on the team dies at the end and that's victory. But, you know, the translation was <laughs> much more appealing. Definitely. So what about the, what's the book that changed your life? There are so many. Um, there are some that uh, were older and some more recent. Um, I would say historically my favorite book has been Prince of Tides um, by Pat Conroy, which was made into a movie, which was not quite as good as the book, but it was about the complexity of family dynamics and how the unsaid things and the unshared things and the and the memories that are pushed down, um, how much they affect you. So that was one big concept. And, you know, the enduring nature of relationships, good, bad, and ugly. And the concept that always sticks out to me is there was a character in the book, a main character, the mother, and she was a shrimper's wife. Her husband was a shrimper where he lived. That's what they did for a living. And she was born and married and became a shrimper's wife, but she always wanted to be a different person. She always wanted to have a different status. So for me, the shrimper's wife has always been an analogy of how dangerous it is to be dissatisfied with what you have and where you are and always to be looking. Now I'm always looking forward in terms of accomplishing and learning, but I hope I'm never, and I really try, tried with my kids also to never say, I wish I were someone else. I wish my life were somebody else's. And so to me, the shrimper's wife is sort of a metaphor for that cautionary tale. If that find a way to either enjoy the life you're in or, or create a different one. I just read the book that's kind of almost similar concept about the pathway of surrender, which I found quite, um, quite empowering. Just about being here right now is the most important place you'll have, you'll be, you are, I guess. I forget who said it, but you know, 50% of life is just showing up. And I think yeah. that's so important. And, you know, I've said things like that to my kids over and over again. And, you know, you see over time, little pieces being absorbed and um, become part of their own behavior. But, you know, all, all you have is yourself and whatever gifts you have or learn and, and the people around you. And I'm sure you've seen these same studies that say the single most important element to have in your life to live longer is connected relationships. Oh, yeah. So to me, you know, part of that is if you're the shrimper's wife and you don't want to be who you are, it's hard to have real connected relationships, but how important that is to have a person or to have people for whatever your needs are. Um, and when I think of that, you know, whether it's someone to cheer me up or make me laugh or help me with ideas. I remember when I was launching my first business and I was trying to raise I was trying to figure out whether I should do this and raise, you know, tens of millions of dollars of venture capital, which I had never done. And I have a group of friends from business school who I see once a year. And one year we show up at our annual retreat. And I said, I'm not asking anybody for money, but I'm curious, what is your opinion about this? I, today I would go and ask people for money, but then I said, I'm not asking anybody for money, but what is your thought? about this idea. And a woman said, a very close friend, and I think I wrote about this in the book, said, I have no money, but
but if I did, I would write you a check for $200,000. And the idea of her writing a check was motivating enough for me to say, you know, this is real. And other people said, I believe you could do this. And because it was so different than what I was doing, um, and ultimately would put me in a much more public uh, facing role, I felt like I needed, you know, some encouragement to get there. Um, and those people remain incredibly important to me. When I have big decisions to make, I turn to them. I turn to my husband. I have friends of longstanding. I, I turn to family. I, that for me, that's always been so important to have people. You know, a lot of um, leadership coaches talk about having your board of directors um, and that they should be people who you don't work with. So um, I have people who I go to just for business questions and they come to me. And then I have people I go to for emotional questions. And, and I just find that literally that's what makes my life rich is those relationships. And I don't mean it to be like saccharine and silly, but I really do believe that the relationships that you have and the conversations you have and the way you touch people and they touch you is really what is the, you know, the underlying fiber of my life. I can totally empathize with that because I feel I spend a lot of time alone, working alone. And then sometimes when I meet other people and they see something in me that I'm struggling to see myself, I just find it so inspiring. And I think we all need those kind of cheerleaders or, and also I try to do the same for, for other people. I think we kind of, if you can bounce off other people's energy and vice versa, it's just so important, especially in this space where, is exciting, but there's so many obstacles and you're going up a, a steep hill and you're facing all these judgment from people as well and and just day-to-day -day business um, challenges. And I think I could totally see you being a cheerleader, you know, in the little <laughs> bit of time that we spent together. I also think that COVID uh, made things a lot worse for a lot of people, you know, if who haven't been hugged or kissed or been in person close to somebody, you know, at least in the first two years, it, it forced a lot of people to sort of change. Their worlds became much smaller. You mm -hmm. could go fewer places, you could see fewer people, you had fewer meetings, whatever it was you were doing became smaller and the walls of wherever you lived, you know, it sometimes I, from many people um, just start to feel like they were caving in because you know, there was very little outside stimulation in certain cases for certain people. Definitely. So where can people find you? Um, you can look at any of the places you just mentioned. Rachel Braun Sherrill is what I am all over um, the internet or RB Sherrill. If you Google Vagipreneur, <laughs> I'm there. If you Google Orgasmic Leadership, uh, I'm there. But um, I really encourage people to reach out. I hope that my passion for the space uh, is communicated as strongly as I, I feel it. Um, and I just am interested in keeping this going. And again, you know, when we get to the top of the mountain and we have just as much money going into the space as everything else, and we can advertise all over. I, I used this expression earlier in the conversation. I want to be able to look back and say in some way, you know, I gave someone else a hand or someone else gave me a hand and we got to the top of this mountain and really changed the course of women's health. 
Fantastic. Thank you so much for taking part in this interview. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. And uh, I appreciate the, the time and the opportunity. The book I'm reading now is Abundance, The Inner Path to Wealth by Deepak Chopra. I bought this book recently when I was in the UK, um, just about a month ago, actually. And I was in Waterstones, which is an English bookshop, and I was surrounded by books in English. It was so amazing because now that I live in Spain, I'm usually buying my books online. But to be surrounded by lots of books that I could just pick up and peruse was just amazing. I ended up buying seven books in different topics. Well, kind of related to money, to what else did I buy? personal development, spirituality, all the things that I'm really interested in. And if I could, I would have bought more, but obviously I had limitations with my suitcase space and weight. And this was a book that I was really looking forward to reading because I've seen a lot of material of Deepak Chopra. I've never read one of any of his books before, and I'm very interested in abundance as well. I think abundance is something that I think is quite misunderstood for some people. I think people think that it just relates to money, which it doesn't at all. I think abundance, or, or not just money, but to materialism. Whenever I've made content about abundance in the past, I think people have said, what? Spirituality, materialism, what, do, what are you talking about? I think people have a, a perception that, or misconception that spirituality is about poverty, or living a um, kind of a life of not having any possessions, which um, that can be, uh, maybe that's what you want to do. But for me, I think abundance is just not living in lack and having, because um, I think I've lived in lack for many times in my life, but probably for most of my life. And it's just not a good place to be, you know, wondering and worrying how you're going to get your next meal, how you're going to pay the rent, not sleeping properly. I've had so many episodes in my life where I've been working a lot with really bad cash flow. And that is just the worst place to be in because you feel like, you're doing a good job, you're doing, you, you know, your job stimulates you, you have a good job, but then it's not really paying for your life and you don't feel that you have an extravagant life. And that's something that I have felt a lot um, during my, the first few years I was working in Spain, especially. It's something that a lot of people live. I've been in Spain for so many years now and the average salary is just not increased, but the cost of living has a lot. So yeah, it's very, uh, I think a lot of us are in this mindset of, I don't have enough and I am not enough. So it's trying to get into that abundance frequency where you do feel as though you are enough and that you have enough, which is a great place to be in. And on the blurb, it says, how to live a life of abundance by the master of modern meditation. Many of us live in a mindset of lack and limitation, focusing on the things we don't have. Too often we allow our egos to drive our thoughts and actions preventing us from reaching something greater, a true sense of inner peace, acceptance, and fulfillment. In abundance, world-renowned pioneer of integrative medicine, Deepak Chopra, offers a simple seven-step plan to help you reset your focus, become the agent of your own life, and strive for life's unbounded possibilities. That sounds amazing, doesn't it? And also, interestingly, it talks about yoga and money, and I've actually chosen now a page just to read, read a little um, extract to you about dharma and money. And dharma, spelled D-H-A-R-M-A, 
is a Sanskrit word that translates literally to the right direction or the rightful duty, which could also mean your life purpose. That kind of links up to everything else we are talking about today. So let me read a bit more about purpose with you. So where is it? So this is a chapter called Dharma and Money. The key to wealth is being in your Dharma, staying on the path that is best for you. Best for you is not defined in advance. You have a choice. And in fact, you have been making choices your entire life that led you led to this moment in time. Look around, and the situation you find yourself in was mind-made. The physical appearance, appearances of a house, a job, possessions, salary, bank account, etc. are the results of consciousness. In and of themselves, material things have no intrinsic value. A mansion can be a place filled with unhappiness. A cottage can be filled with joy. Yes, and also it says your salary can bring what you want out of life or barely keep your head above water, which I think a lot of people can um, relate to. And here is a list of things that says that your dharma, your purpose, will support you if you aim to be happy and fulfilled. You give of yourself to others. You make other people's success as important as your own. That can be hard sometimes. I think sometimes we think about our own and trying to kind of be better than others around us sometimes. But I think it's very important to wish the best for other people around us, even people we don't like too much as well, which is very difficult. Also, it will support you if you act out of love, you have ideals and live by them, you are peaceful, you inspire yourself and the people around you, you are self-reliant, you listen and learn, you expand your options, you take responsibility, you are curious about new experiences, you are open-minded and you have self-acceptance and know your worth. Yes, this is a book which has lots of messages that I'm quite familiar with. It talks about your soul karma for money as well. And then it goes, it's going through the chakra system, starting at the top, which I'm kind of used to the opposite way, actually, starting at the um, at the bottom and working your way up. So I've just been reading about the crown chakra and how to be abundant in every single chakra, which is quite interesting. Um, for example... The crown chakra is all about bliss and abundance of bliss. And the forehead or third eye chakra is about intelligence, throat chakra, self-expression, heart chakra, love, solar plexus chakra, successful action and self-empowerment, sacral chakra, sexual pleasure, sensuality, and the root chakra, security and safety. I think sometimes we can struggle with things in the, in the root chakra when we are struggling with money, finances, and just the basics in life. And yeah, so I think it's important to find abundance in all of these areas of life. And not just about money, but also in your love life, in your personal life, your spiritual life, etc. And just live in peace. So that is Abundance, The Inner Path to Wealth by Deepak Chopra. Now it's time to slow things down as we prepare for this episode's guided affirmations meditation. It's probably not a good idea to listen to this while driving or operating machinery. Instead, take a break from whatever you're doing, get comfortable, take a deep breath and enjoy. I am following my life purpose 
Did you know that you can use your sexual energy to manifest the life of your dreams? It's called sex magic. I've been practicing sex magic for almost five years and it's changed my life. If you're interested in one-to-one magic mentoring with me, visit my website, venusohara.org to find out more. To find out more about me and my orgasmic lifestyle, visit venusohara.org or follow me on Instagram at instagram.com slash venusohara. Make sure to search for the Orgasmic Lifestyle Podcast by Venus O'Hara in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe 
so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks for listening. Have an orgasmic week and make sure every day is a climax.